Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, we revisit homelessness. What is it like not to have a home? What are the circumstances that lead someone to have to live without shelter, a permanent shelter, a home. In just a few minutes, we'll dig into a new study on the experiences of people in the greater Des Moines area who live unsheltered. These are people who live on the streets or in places not intended for human habitation. Uh, We'll hear about that report from those involved with it. Here's a distressing statistic to ponder. On any given night, there are nearly 3,000 people in our state who are homeless. That's nine homeless individuals for every 10,000 Iowans, according to the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Let's meet an Iowan who used to be homeless. Anthony Cruz joins us. He works now at the Lighthouse Center in Washington, Iowa. Uh, The Lighthouse is an emergency shelter for food, furniture, clothing assistance as well, some counseling services. And uh, Anthony joins us uh, from Washington, Iowa today. Anthony Cruz, welcome to our program. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Uh, First of all, let's hear a little bit about uh, where you work now. Uh, Lighthouse provides, as I said, uh, emergency shelter, food, furniture, clothing, assistance, some counseling. Tell us a little bit about the Lighthouse and your work there. Uh, The Lighthouse, yeah, like you said, it's an emergency shelter. Basically, uh, anybody within the Washington County area who needs shelter can come there. We do have not stipulations, but requirements for that. But at the same time, most of those requirements are just to keep people safe, you know, and to keep everybody that's there already has problems. They don't need any more. So we try to keep it as safe as possible, as well as try to help them move forward in their lives. It's not just an emergency shelter. We are a ministry. So we do try to introduce people to Christianity without forcing it on them. Basically, the shelter, you know, runs 24 hours a day as far as that goes. We take calls 24 hours a day, but right now we have uh, several people living there. We have two families living there, um, a single mother and two children, as well as other people who have their family. We try to invite anybody in, you know, that needs shelter, not just for shelter, but we try, like I said, to help them move forward in their lives. As you gathered from my introduction, we're, we're trying to understand the better the, the reasons for homelessness and, and the barriers to those um, seeking um, permanent shelter. Uh, I understand you uh, were homeless uh, off and on for some 15 years. Take us back and tell us a little bit about your, your youth, the factors you see to leading to your later homelessness. As many people, you know, my homelessness began when I was a child. You know, being in a tormented childhood, you know, as far as that goes, really rough growing up. I had uh, several factors that played into that, growing up a single child. And, you know, my mom, you know, wasn't really well-to-do or set off. So basically, you know, she would do the best she could. And we encountered, you know, of course, my dad, who wasn't a very good person. He was very abusive. And uh, then we were with my stepdad, and he was very abusive as well, an alcoholic, and things of that nature, very violent. He used to shoot at us while we were running through fields, 
you know, trying to get away from him. Oh my Just gosh. very abusive relationship and factors that led up to, you know, me eventually moving out and carrying those things with me as an adult. And I'm not saying you can't change what you're an adult, but those things do affect you because that is part of your growing process. You know, sure. and then becoming homeless, you know, I'd become addicted to alcohol without knowing it. I became an alcoholic because that's what I chose to use as my coping mechanism. And as I got older, it got worse. And, you know, eventually, you know, you become a full-blown alcoholic. And then homelessness, you know, ensues because you can't keep a job. You can't keep a place because constantly drunk. And so you end up homeless and out on the street, nowhere to go. You know, your family's had enough. Other people have had enough. So once you're homeless, you know, you try the best you can to move around and do things to support yourself. It's not always easy. Society's not very accepting of people that are homeless, you know, because they don't want to look at the underlying causes that people have when they're homeless, you know. Recall for us, Anthony, recall for us, since we're talking about being unsheltered, recall for some, just so we get a sense of some of the places you've sheltered, especially overnight uh, during those uh, years when you were homeless. Um, I've stayed pretty much everywhere. You've stayed in abandoned buildings. I've stayed at construction work sites. I've stayed in shelters. Um, Shelter wasn't always an option because you may show up drunk or you may not get there on time. Things prevents you from getting there and once you do get to the shelter you like i said you may not be able to stay because if you're intoxicated or you know under the influence of some other drug they may ask you to leave so a lot of times i've I've stayed in uh i think probably the most bizarre place i ever stayed i lived i stayed in mcdonald's cardboard recycling bin one night because it was raining out it was the only place i could find that was open that i could have shelter out of the rain. In a McDonald's recycling bin, you sheltered. Yeah, yeah, we're sheltered for a night um, because, like I said, it was raining, so I had to get out of the rain. It was cold out, probably about, I don't know, maybe 30, 35 degrees out, something like that. It was pretty cold. So, a- Anthony, to understand a little bit more of the mindset of, of people, uh, well, you in this case, when you are homeless, uh, what what are your chief concerns Every day, day in and day out, what do you have in your mind? I suppose when the weather turns cold, it's it's staying warm, staying out of that cold rain or, or snow. Absolutely, you know you want to try to find some place where you can go for the day. If if you have if you can get into the shelter at night, you try you have to go somewhere during the day because you know most shelters aren't open during the day. So you know you may have to go sit at a McDonald's or something, and you know eventually those places ask you to leave because they don't want homeless people sitting in their lobbies or in their, you know, facility, if you're not a consumer or buying something, you know, then they'll ask you to leave. So then you got to find somewhere else to go. A lot of times I was homeless in Kansas city. And I remember I had to ride the streetcar many times, just sit there and ride for hours on end because there was nowhere to go. And, you know, you go to these places and like I said, eventually they ask you to leave because they realize you're homeless and they realize that, you're not buying anything or you're not, you know, contributing to their business. So, you know, which is understandable to some degree, but at the same time, it's like, I'm just looking for a place to go. So I'm out of the weather. 
and, and and you have changed your life. You're now helping others who were are in uh, situations similar to you were in. And I, I I I understand it's been just a few years that you uh, now found a home. I suppose the Lighthouse Center is a home of sorts and a home in Washington, Iowa, right? Exactly. Uh, not everybody's the same. Not everybody goes through the same things, and not everybody has the same problems. You know, like I said, homelessness can. Even if you didn't have the problems when you became homeless, well, you develop problems. You know, you develop issues, mental, you know, stability. You know, because being in a state of flux all the time, your mental status isn't very healthy. For me, yeah, I came to the lighthouse two and a half years ago. Basically, was at the end of my rope. You know, for me, you know, being a Christian, you know, I'm going to say God led me here. He put me in the homeless mm-hmm. shelter and. He put me in this position to get me out of where I was at, because my last words to God before I came here were, you know, either fix me or kill me. That's how desperate I'd become. Yeah. And you're there to, to help others. Exactly. Um, my whole goal here is to help people move forward. You know, it's not just to give them shelter for night. You know, you can get that anywhere. You can go sleep under a bridge or something like that. We want them yeah. to be able to move back into life have a good life that's what we want for everybody being we've had the same experiences they have so being in that position we want them to have the same experiences we're having now as far as moving forward in life and you know having a heart of peace a mind of peace you know if your heart and mind are constantly in turmoil it's hard to have a good life so yeah uh, Anthony, if you can, well, you'll lead us into the next discussion we have um, with the, those involved with this study in Polk County. But one of the chief questions uh, they are looking at and they looked at in this survey is, you know, the chief barriers to finding permanent housing once you're unsheltered, once you're homeless. How would you answer that? What is the help there? What is the best way to get people away from living out of doors in, in really some extreme circumstances in your experience? I mean, it's, it's a learning process. You have to teach people how to integrate back into that life. It begins basic. You know, you have to start, you know, at the bottom. You have to teach them good hygiene practices again. You have to teach them how to. We have chores at the shelter where, you know, they sweep, they do dishes, things of that nature. But these are everything, everyday things that you do, you know, in life. So you have to kind of, they have to relearn it. Now, as far as just moving into a place, that's always a process because there's always waiting lists, you know, for certain homes and certain places where they can get into. Because not everybody has the greatest, you know, background as far as renting or as far as their credit history. So they're limited on to places they can actually move into. So there's always a waiting list for certain housing. There's always a waiting list to get into mental services, things of that nature. So I'd say the biggest issue is, you know, society has become uh, desensitized to other people. So it's hard to move around in society when people just look at you like you don't exist. Well, Anthony, you've given us so much to think about and um, keep up the incredibly important work, it sounds like, that you're doing at the Lighthouse Center there in Washington, Iowa. Anthony Cruz, um, not too long ago, spent um, 15 years off and on uh, homeless uh, here in the state, and and, uh, you've given us plenty to think about as we continue with this discussion. Anthony, take care of yourself and take care of those who, who visit your center. 
Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you. My conversation with Anthony earlier today. Anthony, by the way, uh, throw in there. He's 49 years old. What a fascinating story and and a comeback from um, a terrible um, a youth experience. Um, let's continue our conversation about the homeless uh, uh, and uh, focus in on Polk County, uh, expand, uh, exploring a new study on the experiences of people in the greater Des Moines area who live unsheltered, people who live on the streets or in places not intended for human habitation. Uh, joining us now, Elizabeth Talbert. Uh, Elizabeth is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Drake University in our Des Moines studio. Uh, Professor Talbert, Elizabeth, if I may, welcome to our program. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Elizabeth is the co-author of this study, the Unsheltered Des Moines Study, a long-term collaboration between Drake, uh, uh, University of Researchers, and Polk County Partners. Uh, Angie Arthur is with us as well in our Des Moines studio, Executive Director of Homeward Iowa, Homeward, if I'm reading the uh, website, uh, your website there, you serve Polk County's homelessness, uh, your Polk County's homelessness planning organization, and you are the organization that released this study. Angie, welcome to you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Let's start with you, Elizabeth. Uh, give us an overview of the study, uh, why you conducted it, and, and I'm so glad that we heard, um, uh, first of all, from Anthony there, setting the scene, getting us in the mindset of the people we are focused on this hour. Uh, what, is a, what, a, what was the study about, and, and why did you conduct it? Well, I was approached by um, some folks working on the Homeless Coordinating Council and with about homelessness in Des Moines and Polk County um, about a year ago. And my, my background is in doing pretty large-scale qualitative research um, and lived experiences of people like Anthony, other people living unsheltered, um, are really important to understanding the best kind of policies and programming that, you know, we, we end up doing as a community to help them. Um, and I worked with a great group of people to uh, create a survey and then ultimately um, an interview guide to ask people about their lives. Um, and we, I worked with a group of about six undergraduates from Drake over mm-hmm. the summer. Um, we went out and we went to a bunch of places all over the Polk County area, mostly in Des Moines. We walked the sidewalks downtown. We walked the... Uh, the skyways, we went to camps, we went to soup kitchens, um, and really tried to get as many voices of folks who have had experience living unsheltered in Polk County as we could. Um, Why I did the study, I think it's incredibly important to listen and to hear what people like Anthony and other people who have lived in these very precarious conditions have to say. Um, And and I think we can do a lot with their experiences to try to change the way we do things for the better. Mm-hmm. So, Elizabeth, uh, you mentioned the undergraduates involved in this study. Did you actually do, you and the, did you do some of the interviews as well? I, I did, yes. So, mm-hmm. I, um, I trained the undergraduates, um, and they did a lot. You know, we collected 150 surveys over the course of about two mm-hmm. months wow. and did, did mm-hmm. 37 full in-depth interviews. So, needed a staff of, of some really good people and, and mm-hmm. had it. But yeah, I did do quite a few interviews myself. So what we just heard from Anthony there, he's not a, a resident of uh, Polk County, but it, some of the themes, the things that he said must be very familiar to you and those involved in this study. Absolutely. Yeah. I um, 
wrote a few notes while I was listening to him. Sure. And, you know, one thing that kept coming back, um, people have asked me, what what are some of the, you know, underlying conditions? And the one thing that's really um, seems to be in everyone's background is some kind of trauma. You know, we, we've faced a lot of trauma as a, uh, a nation, but but these folks who are who are dealing with such precarious living conditions have a lot of trauma in their past, kind of like Anthony says. Um, and I also, you know, I hearing him talk about wanting a peaceful spot, you know, making sure there's some kind of peace in yeah. in life. You know, we, we heard that from folks. One of the uh, questions we asked in the survey was, what do you like about living outside? Um, about a quarter of the folks said nothing, um, which is not <laughs> completely understandable. Others said, well, it's peaceful. And I think that um, that's such a change from some of the conditions that they have lived in um, yeah. and, and, you know, expect to live in in the future as well. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, and I think the the search for a real home, a place that is not just shelter, but a place of belonging, a place of safety, um, and a place of autonomy, that's one thing we heard over and over and over again. Yeah, that's so fascinating, the distinction between merely having a shelter and having a home, all the things that are bound up in that word home <laughs> as a exactly. distinction from shelter. Exactly. An- Angie Arthur, let me turn to you, uh, Executive Director of Homeward uh, Iowa. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your role in this survey. Sure. We are help facilitating a group um, that was looking at extreme weather. And um, with that, we really wanted to discuss how we can better serve folks who are unsheltered. And so we were able to um, really think it's important to learn from folks with their lived experience to be able to incorporate that with our best practices and um, evidence-based practices. And with that, we're able to connect with Elizabeth and Dr. Talbert and the work that she's done previously and understand the different um, research efforts that she's done. So went with them and then also partnered with other funders within the community to help move this work forward uh, it's really, I think, an important tool for us to be able to look at things from a systematic viewpoint, mm-hmm. to look at how we can move forward with this lived experience expertise, um, with the folks that do the hard work and the staff that do the hard work on the day in and day out basis, and pair that with that lived experience, uh, like I said, expertise, as well as that evidence-based practices. Yeah. Back to you, Elizabeth. What were your chief findings? I mean, it must be so many interesting quotes, uh, passages from these interviews, experiences that you and the undergraduates at Drake had in really trying to step into the shoes of people who are unsheltered. What are your chief takeaways after this extensive set of surveys and then uh, tens of interviews in depth? Well, um, and I I encourage everybody who's listening to go and download the full report from the Homeward website. Um, You know, we wrote a lot in this report about the barriers to seeking emergency shelter and why people choose to sleep outside as opposed to um, going going to shelter. Um, You know, those barriers include things like... uh, not really wanting to be around that many other people who have similarly tough lives. Um, one of the one of the quotes that stands out to me, uh, we were surveying this summer when we were still doing the the shorter surveys, and one guy looked at us and said, "Well, 
You know, imagine having a hundred other roommates. I will take Iowa mosquitoes over that any day. Yeah, and I, su- um, I suppose there's the possibility of being abused by fellow homeless people. Exactly. As well. There's a safety issue on both sides, right? There's um, people feel unsafe outside. Um, there's you know a lack of lack of security in living in a tent or living you know on a bench. But there's also a feeling of a lack of safety even when you're around a lot of other people and not quite sure who they are or what might happen. Yeah. Elizabeth, did you find that the unsheltered people in your survey and your interviews fell into different categories? I imagine there are some, well, gender is one category. You could comment on that or whether they'd been, you know, homeless, unsheltered for a long period of time or relatively short. That's a great question as well. Um, we, We actually looked at kind of how long people had been outside, and it broke down pretty much along about one-fifth, one-fifth, one-fifth. A lot of people had been out for less than a month, and some people had been, you know, living outside for six years or longer. Um, And it's it's a, uh, yeah, it, it it was all across that spectrum. As far as gender goes, we talked to more um, people who identify as men, but there were quite a few women as well. Um, one of the things that we found in the report is that women have a specifically difficult time if they're single and seeking shelter because there is no dedicated um, shelter for women yet in um, in, in Polk County, um, there are family shelters and there are shelters that are co-ed, but women sometimes feel um, even even less safe than the, the um, than men might in the shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angie, we have about a minute before we go to break, and you, you two will please stay with us um, through the break. Um, but uh, what are the chief ways you will use this information gathered by this survey? We have the opportunity to share this information with our community members, our elected officials, as well as um, other service providers. So what we'll look at that as the findings and what we can do um, from a response perspective. I think it's the important thing to understand it's going to take the entire Polk County community to be invested in the work and to help our community members who are unsheltered to access that safe, affordable, and that permanent housing that we have. Okay. We're going to go away for a few minutes, and we'll be back. Uh, Stay tuned. Uh, Angie Arthur, um, Executive Director of Homeward Iowa, uh, the organization that put out this uh, new survey, um, the Unsheltered Des Moines Study, a long-term collaboration between Drake University researchers and uh, partners in Polk County. When we come back, we'll talk more with... Angie and Elizabeth, uh, you can join our conversation. Perhaps you have a specific angle, a personal experience. Perhaps uh, you were homeless or a member of your family were homeless. Uh, Join our conversation with your question, your comment, as we try to to understand homelessness and get people back uh, into a more permanent shelter. 1-866-780-9100. 1-866-780-9100 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalome, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at desmoinesmetroopera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. So good to have you on board on this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, wrapping our minds around the experience of being homeless. Uh, Fortunately, something that uh, most of us will never have to experience, having no permanent shelter, no home uh, for months, maybe years. And uh, we heard from such an individual, Anthony, earlier in the program, and uh, we're uh, tapping into understanding the barriers preventing the unsheltered from finding a permanent dwelling. Uh, A new study out on the experiences of people in the greater Des Moines area who live unsheltered, people who live on streets or in places not intended for human habitation. With us, uh, Elizabeth Talbert, uh, assistant professor of sociology at Drake University, co-author of this study, Unsheltered Des Moines Study. It's a long-term collaboration between Drake University researchers and Polk County partners. Uh, they, uh, their research team, Elizabeth and uh, undergraduate students at Drake University, surveyed 152 individuals uh, with the experience of living outdoors in Polk County, conducted tens of in-depth interviews of that same population. Angie Arthur with us as well, Executive Director of Homeward Iowa. Uh, they, uh, or This organization released the study. We're getting some insights onto how this data will be used to, to focus and perhaps change uh, policy. Uh, I want to ask a question uh, that is put to us by uh, Jacob in Dubuque. He's listening. He left a message. He, he says, why is there no shelter for men with children around Iowa? I've been a foster parent for years, according to Jacob, and there wasn't a way for men to care for uh, children. Angie, is that something you can comment on? Yes, we can. Actually, in the Polk County area, we do have three family shelters, and they do um, house families of all types, including single dads with kiddos, um, single moms, two-parent households, um, grandparents with with children. So we do have those resources available for us in in our region, in our area. Okay. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about, uh, Elizabeth, to you. Based on the findings, uh, what are the recommendations uh, that uh, you would make based on this study? Well, um, recommendations, uh, we, we kind of split them into three levels. The first being, it's cold right now. It's winter. We don't want people um, to perish outside. It is hard to live outside in the winter. Um, and, and so just making sure we can encourage as many people as possible to come in. And for those folks who are going to um, try to survive outside, you know, keeping up and making sure uh, we're, we're checking in on them, making sure that nobody nobody loses their life because of the cold this winter. Mm. Um, in the medium term, you know, maybe kind of starting to trend toward this idea of non-congregate shelter. We kept hearing from people about the need for privacy, about the desire to have one's own door um, to close in the evening. Mm. And, um, you know, starting to think about how we do emergency shelter in the area and, and if there's a way to move toward single rooms or, or you know, one roommate as opposed to 50. Um, and then long term, you know, there are, there are very few things that are going to do um, as much as providing more affordable um, 
subsidized and and sometimes um, supportive housing to people who need it and who really want a home and want to be able to um, provide for themselves. Yeah. Ultimately. Angie Arthur, when you hear these recommendations, are there real surprises here? Are there eye-opening comments or conclusions, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, around Iowa? You know, in, in the various organizations that uh, try to help the homeless, there are perhaps policies that may be well-intentioned but really don't help much? Is there a sense of a course correction based on this data? You know what I'm getting at? Sure. I I think what the report did for us, it affirmed a lot of things that we had anecdotal information for, Mm -hmm. but didn't have the data to support that understanding. I think sometimes, like, for example, there's a perception that people want to be outside. And when you look at the report, 141 of the 143 people that responded to that, they're like, they confirmed that people want overwhelmingly that safe, affordable place to call home where they can share it with their family, friends, and their pets. So that is something that's really important. Um, I, I would also say and agree with Elizabeth, it highlights the need for affordable housing, mm-hmm. not just in Polk County, but across the state. Mm-hmm. That is something that's a gap for us and affordable housing for extremely poor individuals as well as moderate income individuals. Yeah. So those are those things um, that I think will be helpful. I think we'll also we'll, you know, be able to look at some of those conversations with um, funders and folks within our communities about what those individual community needs are. Every community is unique and has um, unique services and unique gaps for them. Um, But also that concept of compassion and dignity, I think that's important to remind folks of as they do the hard work every day of of providing services to folks, but also to think about how that happens and how they can best support individuals with that dignity and compassion in the yeah. work that we do. Yeah, and we heard, you reminded me of something, you know, we heard from Anthony mm-hmm. earlier is, you know, that we've become as a society desensitized to those who don't have homes. We see them every day in our communities and pretty much ignore them. So we need, Angie, to, to correct that. But I guess the question is how? That's a, I, I, this is Elizabeth again, and I, and I, Really, I wrote that down when Anthony said it. You know, we've become desensitized to other people. And as much as we hope this report will, um, you know, improve policy um, and and programming for our unsheltered neighbors, I also hope it it serves to sensitize us a little more to the humanness of this problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth and Angie, let's uh, add to our conversation uh, Janae Peterman. Uh, Janae is the Director of Housing Services at Waypoint in Lynn County. I understand. Uh, welcome, Janae, to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me tonight or today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand uh, Waypoint helps individuals through rapid rehousing and homeless prevention programs uh, to help uh, obtain permanent housing. Um Tell us about Lynn County. How bad is the unsheltered problem in uh, eastern Iowa there in Lynn County? Sure. Um, We're kind of seeing, as all other communities are, right, we're seeing our our unsheltered population increase. But the interesting thing is we are seeing our shelter census decrease. So just like this study pointed out, is individuals who are experiencing homelessness, who emergency shelters are designed to serve, are saying we exactly what Angie just mentioned. We want a place to call home that we have our own autonomy over. 
um, you know, we, we don't want to shelter. There are barriers that we have to accessing emergency shelter or that make it comfortable for us to be there in the meantime. So um, I think whether you're in a rural community or an urban center, right, um, we are recognizing that the solution to ending homelessness is truly affordable housing with wraparound supports. Mm-hmm. I understand, Janae, you, you've read this Unsheltered Des Moines study, uh, this collaboration between Drake and Polk County partners here. What's your reaction? What did you find most interesting, useful for your work in Lynn County or statewide? Yeah, um, it reaffirmed what we are seeing. Um, you know, we are here locally, we are driving to how do we increase our housing capacity and increase our housing program so that we are more effective at ending homelessness for individuals. Um, and reading this report and also reading the quotes, the direct quotes from individuals reaffirmed that what we're seeing here is, is it seems to be the viewpoint um, across the state of individuals that are are unsheltered and seeking housing. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned uh, rural versus urban homelessness. Now that's something that's that's interesting. Uh, I wonder if you can tell us about that. Um, what is homelessness like in rural Iowa compared to larger communities? Uh, how do rural communities tackle this problem differently? Could you comment on that, Janae? Sure. Yeah. So thing with Waypoint is we are an access point to homeless services for 96 counties throughout the state of Iowa. So we interact with individuals at different um, points along their homeless journey or their their housing crisis journey. So what we see is individuals in rural community experience homelessness at a different um, a different capacity, right? There's um, more sometimes more neighbors helping neighbors in rural communities. So you have people that um, you can lean on, you can rely on, you have a closer um, faith-based community within your rural community or um, a school guidance counselor that's more um, willing to help out and and get resources. So people are more likely to double up. So you don't see as many households experiencing literal homelessness. And then once an individual gets to that point of experiencing literal homelessness, and I think we've heard this kind of through all of the different topics, is that there's a lot of barriers that come along with that. So that's when individuals typically will then relocate to a more urban setting to be more around those uh, resources that aren't always available in a rural setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me go back to, to Angie and Elizabeth here. We have a question from one of our listeners, Gary in Davenport, asks, what about near homeless? Did you measure that number? Now, uh, Angie, perhaps you can enlighten of us. I don't know that term very well. What, what does that mean? I think what um, Gary is referring to is the fact that some folks might be imminently homeless, like within the next 14 or 30 days. With this report, we did not focus on that. We focused specifically on sheltered individuals. But I think that is very much a challenge for us in our community. A lot of the funding from a federal perspective focuses on people that are literally homeless. And so we need to look at what that what those resources are for you and your communities um, as well to be able to help prevent that. Because we know if we can 
provide those resources and prevent people from becoming homeless, that's going to reduce an experience of trauma in their life. And it's best to keep people housed in a a location, particularly as we're running into that challenge of lack of affordable and accessible housing. Yeah. Angie, do you find that um, those in power, perhaps elected officials, the legislature, people, county officials, are open to this? I mean, you can have... Uh, the best data, um, but you need to have policy that matches uh, your findings and you need to have funding for it. Well, what are your thoughts there, Angie? I think we have a lot of opportunities to improve um, within that area. So, for example, within the state of Iowa, there's um, 5% of the real estate transfer tax that goes to the Shelter Assistance Fund, which is very important for us in the state of Iowa to be able to work with those resources, that equates to about $1.8 million. So that's the full extent of the support that goes to homeless services across the state of Iowa. So there's definitely ability to expand that. I think in that earlier comment that I said about it's going to take the whole community to be able to have that um, response, but I think it's a collective responsibility. What are some of the funding availabilities within your, um, your counties as well as in your local communities? thing as we move forward, I mean, there's those opportunities. We've seen some expansion of funding on a federal level with the current administration. So I think there's some opportunities regarding that. And there was just an announcement about um, unsheltered um, funding opportunity. And there's some of those dollars that will be going to the rural parts in Iowa. Literally at 11 o'clock, that kind of information came out today. Mm. So, you know, I think there's opportunities that we have but there's many more opportunities that we can gain together. And we know those resources that are needed, for example, about permanent supportive housing and those supportive services, those are going to be long-term needs and supports uh, that are important and are going to make a definite impact for us in the community. Janae Peterman of Waypoint in Lynn County, and you have such a good scope on the entire state in in this uh, area and this need. What is your view on funding? Um, do you have the resources? Do Does Iowa have the resources to tackle this problem now that we're better informed be, because of things like this study? Um, I'm hopeful that this study will bring more resources. Um, I, I, you know, as a nonprofit, <laughs> We ne- there are never enough resources, right? Um, we could always use more funding for case management services and, and housing acquisition and really digging into rehouse individuals. So my hope is that this study will bring more resources to the community and get local um, donors involved in this cause and um, supporting their local nonprofit that's doing this work. Yeah, I wanted to end up w- with that in just a moment, ask about what we as individuals can do. But before that, uh, back to Elizabeth, if I could, because this is such a fascinating survey in that you did, uh, you and students at, at Drake there did, did these in-depth interviews. It wasn't just sort of multiple choice, um, check the box type of <laughs> survey. <laughs> it was really open-ended questions, right? It was, yeah. Um, most surveys, you know, you have a range of answers. We went in wanting to listen as much as we um, wanted to, you know, get the information. And we wanted to hear what people's answers would be without giving them those predetermined options. Yeah. And I don't know if you have direct quotes there, but I'd be interested. uh, As a journalist, I'm very interested in this project, too, because as with interviews that, that I've done for years, you must have run into quotes, words, phrases that were just absolutely enlightening, penetrating in in pursuit of the goal you had here. I wonder if you had can remember any of the 
the interactions that you and your students had that will stay with you for years? I, I remember a lot of them. Um, you know, I, have, I have several written down here that I can read. The, the interactions themselves, I think one of the things I can say, almost everyone who we talked to, our, our final question on the survey was, if you could speak to somebody in charge who could maybe change things, what would you tell them? Yeah. Um, overwhelmingly, people said, be more compassionate, be kinder, um, and, and also take, listen to us. Please listen to us. And we'd end the surveys, and people would say, thank you for listening to our story. And, you know, it was our pleasure. It was the, the, the job. But um, I, I think really trying to humanize folks through these stories. Um, you know, one of the quotes that we have in the report, in the report summary that has stuck with me, um, is everybody thinks we're homeless because we chose that. Sometimes that's not, it's not the issue. It just so happened that our money just wasn't there because of our job being so stupid, and now we're back on the streets. That's, we didn't choose that. We don't choose to have two jobs and still have no money. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, yeah, I, I think that this is the kind of... Uh, these are these are folks, you know, who who have feel, felt so marginalized by by their circumstances and by, um, you know, the the lack of resources for them. Um, but they're also very much people who have lived lives a lot like you know, like ours, up to a point where something went wrong, um, and that thin line between. Uh, being imminently unhoused and being unhoused is 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 very very thin. Yeah. Um, um, here's a question from Anne in Burlington who is listening, and um, I'm not sure who can tackle this, but the question is from Anne: What percentage of homeless in Iowa are homeless due to mental health issues? Who can tackle that? Well, I can say. Um, I, I don't know the percentage. I don't know how we measure that, but I do know that mental health issues are a two-way street in this particular um, social problem, right? We've got maybe mental health issues lead to becoming homeless, but being homeless, as Anthony said earlier, is really bad for your mental health as well. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle. And, you know, considering Anthony's description of his uh, childhood with an abusive father, uh, uh, alcoholism there, also an abusive stepfather. Um, uh, yeah, it would be tough to keep a handle on, on your mental health with that kind of upbringing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, let, let's finish up with uh, your thoughts, uh, each of you perhaps, on what individuals can do now that we're a little bit wiser as to what it's like to be uh, without shelter uh, for long periods of time. Um, Angie, would you start us off uh, briefly? We have just a couple minutes left. Sure. I think there's several things to do. You know, take the opportunity to educate, educate yourself, like on uh, this study, as well as there's other important studies happening around the state regarding folks experiencing homelessness. Um, take an opportunity. You can volunteer with an organization local to you or um, donate. And I would say there's opportunities for advocacy from a legislative perspective, um, locally, as well as other things um, that might happen on a state perspective. So those are all different options that folks can pursue. Okay. Uh, Janae, please, uh, a few words to close here. 
Yeah, also, you know, educating your neighbors on homelessness and what, and that housing ends homelessness. Um, that way we can prevent our communities from having a knee-jerk response of, of creating a Band-Aid as opposed to solutions. Mm-hmm. And, and Elizabeth Talbert. I think that we need to continue to listen um, and to build systematic ways to make sure we're listening to people who are utilizing public services and um, you know, and, and really consuming the programs um, and just make sure that that's part of how we make decisions as a community um, and as, as policymakers. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, listening and just being compassionate around folks. One of my students said this summer, you know, I'm, now I listen better. And I've learned that listening can really be a form of action as well. Yeah. And we heard from Anthony so many um, of us uh, simply ignore the homeless there. Elizabeth, with you and your, your crew of interviewers, did you come away with, I mean, will you and, and the, the undergraduates uh, interact more with, with the homeless when we encounter them in our communities, treat them in a different way? What were the personal takeaways that you and, and your students have here? Absolutely. Um, we will. I think that when you look at somebody face to face and sit and talk with them for an hour and a half. It takes away this uh, barrier of mistrust of, of, you know, any kind of predetermined idea you might have about them. Um, And, you know, my students have said, wow, I, I interact with the entire Des Moines community differently. Now I I see Des Moines in a much different way. Um, And yes, I, I do too. And this kind of research is why I love um, yeah, I love this kind of research for that. Yeah. It, it opens it opens doors in ways that other other things may not. Yeah, and I bet some of those undergraduates involved in this study will be propelled and passionate in in helping out in these similar fields, won't they, Elizabeth? Yes, I really hope they will, and I, and I know they're already doing some things like that. Okay, thank you very much, Elizabeth. Thank you, Talbert, sociologist, professor of sociology at Drake University, um, Angie. Uh, Arthur with us of Homeward, Iowa, and Janae Peterman, Director of Housing Services at Waypoint in Lynn County. What a valuable conversation and, and such an interesting report here. Thank you all for participating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow on the program, it's a News Buzz edition. Um, We have plenty in store for you. Not time enough to go into that. I'll just mention that today's program produced by Caitlin Troutman with help from Samantha McIntosh. Also, thanks to Tony Sarabia. Uh, I'm Ben Kiefer. Talk again tomorrow. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.